Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Swing and a drive! Swing, there's a shot! High drive! Out of here! This laser beam of a home run for Brandon Crawford. First home run of the year for the Giants, and it's Joey Bart. Is. Challenger strikes out swinging. Swing and a miss, he struck him out. What a performance from Logan Webb tonight. Camilo Doval gets the save. Inside Giant Moments. Yastrzemski, gone! And late night Lamont strikes again. Belt was all over it. The captain. Great call, Parker. With Adam Copeland. Welcome back into the Inside Giant Moments podcast. I'm your host, Adam Copeland, back with you uh, with another week uh, of some great Giant stories and great Giants content. And always fun when we can do a podcast following a Giants three-game sweep over the L.A. Dodgers last weekend. You know, there's a, a mantra in the NBA that I've always kind of lived by as a, as a basketball fan where they say the NBA doesn't start till Christmas Day. Now, naturally, the schedule gets going in October and in November, but everybody who's anybody knows the season doesn't start or really get going or heating up until Christmas Day. I sort of feel the same way about Giants baseball. The season doesn't really start, whether it happens in April or it happens in June or July, but especially if it happens about a third of the way through the season right here. Season doesn't get going until you beat the L.A. Dodgers, and if you beat them in three consecutive games, a team that was leading the National League West, you think about where the Giants were coming into that series entering last Friday. Uh, the Dodgers were six and a half games up. The Giants, if they were swept in that series, could have exited that series down nine and a half games instead it's like a six game swing they pulled themselves within three and a half the Padres pulled themselves within a half game of the Dodgers so this National League West race for as much as we saw the Giants and the Dodgers beat each other up last year and really grind each other into a pulp which ultimately allowed the Dodgers to, to get defeated by the Atlanta Braves in the NLCS in, in uh, six games back in 2021. Uh, that's what beat them up. Their championship series really was against the Giants in the NLDS last year, and the same could probably be said about the Giants. They actually may have been better equipped, the Giants, to go on and take on the Braves last year. Anyway, we could be in for a really, really fun summer and into the fall yet again with the Giants, the Dodgers, and this year with the Padres involved in a National League division race. So uh, we'll get to a, a couple of highlights there, but should let you know later in the podcast, we are going to talk to Giants outfielder Austin Slater, who on Sunday against the Dodgers led off with a home run, a 1-2 count against Julio Urias. He actually fell behind 0-2 in that uh, that at bat and then was able to uh, to park one over the center field wall only moments before Mike Yastrzemski hit a solo home run uh, to give the Giants a 2-0 lead and that's where it would hold up. The Giants in that sweep against the Dodgers allowed just four runs all weekend. How about that? A 7-2 victory on Friday when they go 3-2 on uh, on Saturday and then uh, on Sunday they close it down 2 to nothing. So fun weekend of Giants baseball at an Oracle Park and really fun pride celebration as well on uh, on Saturday and we of course had, uh, had Eric Braverman and uh, Roscoe 
Maps on with us last week talking about the uh, the celebration that we're going to have on Saturday. Really, really fun day. Beautiful weekend at the yard. Though I do want to add this. And Giants fans, I'm calling you out a little bit. we got to make sure we're planting our flag a little bit better at Oracle Park, especially when the Dodgers are coming to town. I know it was a Warrior weekend on Friday, and a lot of people were out at the ballpark. And I was there, too, actually, on Friday night. And I was paying attention to the Warrior game. It's always fun when there's a... Uh, a Warrior playoff or finals game going on when you're at the yard because you end up with situations where uh, there'll be like a, a quiet moment in the ball game and then you hear a big eruption, a crowd roar kind of maybe from the club level or somewhere out in the bleachers and it's because there was like a big Warrior bucket. Steph went off for 43 points, but uh, early in the game when the Dodgers went up one nothing, it erupted with Dodger blue and the, the stadium hadn't filled out yet and we love to poke fun at the Dodger fans for showing up in the third and leaving the seventh. I need my Giants fans to have my back a little bit. We got to get there. We got to get there on time and we got to make sure we're taking over the ballpark when Dodger Blue comes to town because those fans are coming in droves now. Now, uh, a big group of them came up and took over the bleachers on Saturday and went home unhappy. Same could be said about Sunday, but uh, we got to make sure we're holding on to our home field advantage. We want our Giants and Black and Orange feeling good when they take the field in what feels like frequently playoff games at Oracle Park when you're taking on the Dodgers. So, uh, I'm I'm a little bit taken aback by how they uh, how the Giants that is were able to pull out that victory on Saturday. The Dodgers had guys on base damn near every inning. They were going leadoff, double, leadoff, double, leadoff, double, getting guys on base, and they just could not get anybody across to score. Dave Roberts after the game said they gave that away. I don't think they so much gave it away as uh, as they did not capitalize on opportunities. They had chances to come out and win that game. They had chances on Sunday, three leadoff doubles on Sunday, and the Giants pitching was fantastic. A couple of concerning things. Maybe the number one concerning thing to come out of that series sweep over the Dodgers was the Friday night performance of Jacob Junis. I don't know where the Giants would be without Junis this year. You, you look up and down the lineup, and there's a handful of guys who've helped out considerably. Obviously, Luis Gonzalez has been fantastic, and really the role that Lamont Wade Jr. would have played. He's played himself onto the roster to a point where they can't send him down. He's been one of the Giants' best hitters, and they can bat him almost anywhere in the lineup. He's playing a solid defense in right and in left field, uh, and he's doing a great job. I, I'm, I'm sort of clamoring for an outfield and a lineup that could consist of Lamont Wade Jr., Mike Yastrzemski, and Luis Gonzalez. That would be a uh, a fun lineup to have out there. And then at that point, Jock Peterson can go to the DH spot, really sort of fill out that left-handed lineup against right-handed pitching. So guys like Luis Gonzalez, Tyro Estrada is another one where you wonder where the Giants would be without him. Jacob Junis may be the best pitcher to this point over the last month or so, last six weeks for the Giants since he worked himself into the rotation. And don't forget, they'd been running with an opener for him uh, in the early part of the year. He, the Giants signed him because he had options. They thought he was going to be versatile. They'd be able to bounce him up and down to the minor leagues if necessary. But because of an injury to Anthony DiSclefani and then ultimately to Alex Cobb, that next train that landed him on the injured list, they needed uh, Jacob Junis in the uh, in the rotation, and he had been fantastic. Eight strikeouts in an outing last week, and then he shows up and beats the Dodgers on Friday night. Unfortunately, a hamstring injury, a grade two hamstring strain, is going to keep him out there saying four to six weeks. So that's a concern. He's not going to be back until uh, later this summer. That said, the uh, the Dodgers, and, and you never want to see a guy get hurt, but Walker Bueller with a, a flexor strain, he's going to be out there saying six to eight weeks. Walker Bueller's not going to be able to throw for a considerable amount of time for the Dodgers. So, they get Clayton Kershaw back as uh, as the division gets a little bit tighter, but then right after they get Kershaw back, they lose uh, Walker Bueller. So both starting pitchers on Friday night end up going down with injuries, and the Giants are going to have to fill this rotation back out. Now, the 
positive element to this or the positive development to all this is Anthony Descalfani on Friday had his first rehab start, three innings in Sacramento, three hits, three strikeouts, no runs, no walks, nothing like that. Now, the velocity was a little bit down, but all in all, they believe he looked pretty good. This is about getting himself feeling right. They're going to have to stretch him back out so that he can give you five or six innings in a start in the rotation. I believe he's eligible to come off the injured list on June the 21st. So about a week from now, he could be making his Giants debut or debuting again coming off of the injured list. And same can be said about Alex Cobb, who's eligible to come off on the 19th. He threw a live BP session on Monday. So they believe he'll be able to come back and bolster that rotation as well. One other concerning thing having to do with injuries and health would be Matt Boyd, who the Giants gave over $5 million to a former Detroit Tiger left-handed pitcher. Uh, He'd had a, a shoulder surgery and had been throwing some live BP was shut down on Monday with a little bit of uh, uncomfortable or discomfort, I should say, in his throwing shoulder. They're, they're not really sure what the setback is going to look like, but this is a guy I think they were anticipating, especially a left-handed pitcher with all the great left-handed hitters the Dodgers and the Padres have uh, at the back end of the season. You were hoping he was going to be able to make, I don't know, seven, eight, ten starts for them uh, at some point this year. So keeping an eye on the Matt Boyd situation, but it does at least right now look like the roster is getting a little bit more healthy specifically from the starting pitcher side. However, they did lose Jacob Junis. And I was I was at the point where I was like circling Jacob Junis starts on my uh, uh, on my calendar. I was getting hyped for whenever Junis was going to be out there. So uh, hoping he gets back healthy at some point soon. All right, one of the big uh, big moments that we celebrate this week uh, before we get to our conversation with Austin Slater, who was fantastic this weekend against the Dodgers, and then again on Monday actually against the Kansas City Royals. We'll get to that conversation about uh, the Dodger rivalry and that sweep in just a few minutes. But we got to look back ten years ago on Monday, June thirteenth. 2012, Matt Cain accomplished one of the greatest accomplishments in all of sports, just 23 of them in the history of baseball. He threw a perfect game and a 10-0 win over the Houston Astros. By the way, Houston Astros at that point, they were in the National League. How about that? It used to be six teams in the uh, the National League Central and just four in the American League West. They were able to reconfigure, rejumble it, but Matt Cain throws the per- first and only perfect game in San Francisco Giants history. I had a great chance to, uh, to talk to Bruce Bochy actually earlier this week and about what that meant. He said, you know, Matt Cain's guy who doesn't like to to take ownership of that perfect game because a perfect game it's not just about the pitcher being perfect it's about the fielders being perfect it's about the umpires being perfect and making sure they get the calls right I mean we saw the imperfect game the famous one where Jim Joyce uh calls a a runner safe for Armando Galarraga of the Detroit Tigers and he lost what would have been a perfect game it's now of course known in the in baseball history as the imperfect game but it's there's a lot of pressure on everybody defensive replacements who come into the game you think about that final Final play Joaquin Arias made at third base. He was not the starting third baseman. He was the starting shortstop that day. Brandon Crawford came into the game as a defensive replacement. Pablo Sandoval exited from third base, and then here comes uh, uh, Joaquin Arias moving over to third and ultimately uh, made what was was one of the most difficult plays in all of the game. Also in that game, uh, Ryan Terrio, Bruce Bochy told us the other day that when he got pulled out of that game at second base, uh, shout out Ryan the Riot. Ryan Terrio was a, was a fun giant in 2012. A couple of great games uh, where he was sliding across home, played some big scores in the postseason. And apparently Ryan Terrio told uh, Bruce Bochy that uh, he wanted to come out of the game. He said, get me out of here. I do not want to have that pressure on me. I do not want to be the guy who makes a mistake that costs uh, Matt Cain his perfect game. And uh, Bochy also sort of talked about when when Jonathan Sanchez threw his no-hitter. Don't forget, he had a perfect game going like into the eighth inning. And then an infield, what might have been an infield hit to third base. Uh, Juan Uribe charged the ball, kind of bobbled the ball, made a mistake, and was ultimately ruled an error. I, I think credit goes to Juan Uribe there. If he doesn't charge it... An attempt to make the play that he made might have been called an infield hit. So Boach was saying Uribe still feels terrible that he might have cost 
Uh, Jonathan Sanchez, a perfect game. I, I say uh, no big deal there for Jonathan Sanchez. I think he saved your no-hitter. And also Matt Cain with 14 strikeouts, one of the best performances you will ever see. So when you talk Matt Cain's perfect game, what's the play that comes to mind? Well, it's got to be this one right here. Gregor Blanco in the gap. Here's the 3-2 pitch on the way. And it is driven to right center field. On the move, Blanco sprinting back. Gregor Blanco reaches out. Diving! He caught it! What a play by Gregor Blanco. And that's when you start to think it might happen. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I was at that game. I was sitting up in 304. I was way up there, up the uh, the right field line. And when he made that catch, I was with a couple of my best friends who I've seen probably hundreds of Giants games with. We turned and we looked at each other and we just kind of kind of raised our eyes. and Because and, there's a moment like that in every perfect game and every no-hitter. There's an incredible play where you're right. Late in the game, especially that one, a seventh inning catch by uh, by Gregor Blanco to, to Rob Jordan Schaefer. A guy who was pretty speedy, uh, by the way. Hits that in the gap. And when a play like that has made you start counting out you start thinking to yourself oh boy this could be something special this is something that could be happening by the way when the uh, the giants get out of the uh, or exit the eighth inning and the astros are about to come up in the ninth shout out my buddy paul who leaned over to me and said hey man we all know what's going on here and i said dude you know the rule we don't talk about this stuff he goes we've all been to enough baseball games we know what's happening and i said please paul just humor me just humor me and moments later we got to witness history at oracle park Kane with that look of determination Starts his windup. His one-two pitch is grounded toward third. Arias has it. Stumbles. Throws to first. And he did it. Matt Kane is the first pitcher in the 128 years of the Giants franchise to pitch a perfect game. Oh, man, I love a walk down memory lane uh, thinking about Matt Cain and the uh, the perfect game. And he's still sort of self-effacing about it, right? Doesn't want to take all the credit. So uh, congratulations. And I can't believe it's been 10 years since Matt Cain threw a perfect game. All right, back into our current San Francisco Giants who are riding a little bit of a streak themselves after sweeping the L.A. Dodgers. Always feels good waking up uh, for a fresh week after you take down the Dodgers in three consecutive at home. The Giants have an opportunity to make up some games against the Pirates and the Royals, but they do have a tough matchup next week against the Atlanta Braves. Anyway, here to talk about that sweep over the L.A. Dodgers, Giants starting center fielder, right fielder, left fielder, wherever you want to put him, Austin Slater. It's a pleasure to welcome to the Inside Giant Moments podcast, Austin Slater, outfielder extraordinaire. Can we can we still say infielder, Austin? I know that you haven't played second base or first base in a while. Did, did you kick those gloves to the curb, man? Yeah, I don't think I, I could be considered an infielder right now. Um, you know, it's been it's been over a year and a half. So I think that ship has sailed, at least at least uh, for now. All right, so we'll go. We'll go outfielder and uh, on baseball reference. Unless she has a pinch hitter, and I'm like, that's like everybody. You, you have to put that as a specific <laughs> position. That's everybody. So uh, that's nice. everyone on the Giants. That's yeah, sure. exactly, exactly. Uh, nice series for you guys over the weekend. Uh, you know, in, in basketball, I always joke around. The season doesn't start until Christmas Day. Like everybody knows that you get the season rolling. I think for a lot of Giants fans, the season doesn't start until the Giants beat the Dodgers, and that happened in Spades this week in a three game sweep. When you wake up Monday morning after sweeping the Dodgers, any any extra pep in your step? Uh, yeah, I think it feels good. Uh, you know, that's a great team uh, and big rivalry for us. Um, and, you know, that's kind of kind of uh, it's a measuring stick moment, I think, uh, you know, because they're one of the elite teams in the league. And, uh, you know, uh, being able to, to sweep them is definitely uh, big for the confidence and I think a big a big uh, stepping stone for our team. 
So in the NFL, they always talk about like the 24 hour rule, like don't get too high, uh, don't get too low. You get one day to celebrate or to dwell on the loss. Then you turn back around. Is there a baseball rule like that? Is there a big opportunity for you guys to celebrate or is it quickly on to the Kansas City Royals? Uh, it's quickly on to the Kansas City Royals. I think baseball, uh, just the nature of the sport kind of lends itself to, um, you know, enjoy for, for an hour and then move on. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, an everyday kind of sport and uh, you have to recompose and and get back to it the next day. Um, you know, I, I think this is this next week is, is going to be, um, you know, a big one for us. I think it's um, I, I like to I like to call them trap trap games. Um, and that, you know, um, I know the Royals have been struggling as of late, but they're still, um, you know, a quality ball club and uh, they have good players. And, you know, if you let your guard down, uh, that, could, that could quickly uh, turn into a series loss or even, um, you know, game, those are games that, you know, we need to we need to cover and we need to uh, be at our best to make sure that we uh, continue our momentum. So I was out there on, on Friday night, a nice 72 win for you guys over the Dodgers on Friday. Definitely had a buzz. The Friday night games, and I know it was up against the Warriors. I was like, yeah, no, Warriors final game. I'm going I'm going Giants-Dodgers. I got other loyalties, other morals I got to, uh, to uphold. So at six years at the big league level with the Giants, do these games start to feel different? Do they have that playoff atmosphere? Because it's sort of it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter how good both teams are doing. And, and for the last couple of years, you've both been great ball clubs. But does it have a different feel than other regular season games? Uh, I, it definitely does. I think the, the fans are more engaged on both sides. You know, the Dodgers, uh, they typically travel well to us and, and we travel well down to them. And so uh, there's a different kind of buzz in the ballpark uh, when we're playing them. And, uh, you know, it's I think it's the closest, um, you know, field to a playoff game. So I think uh, coming out strong in, in those games and, um, you know, getting those kinds of games under your belt are huge. So leadoff home run for you against uh, Julio Urias in, in Sunday's game. You were behind one, two. I think you fell behind 0-2 in the count. Then you got a, uh, a pitch that you took for a ball. Uh, and then you give him a 1-0 lead with the uh, the leadoff home run. Can you walk us through what's going through your head in situations like that? What's your approach when you file behind in a leadoff at bat against a guy like Urias? Yeah, Urias, uh, you know, uh, he's he's a competitor. He's he's a tough matchup. Uh, you know, he's, he gives up two homers in the first inning and still – uh, goes out and battles for six innings. Um, so, you know, I, those, those matchups are always fun. He's, he's a really, really good pitcher in terms of um, any pitch, any count uh, he locates well. So, you know, leading off the game, especially, it was just like uh, get the barrel on the ball and, and put the ball in play and try to get something going for us um, because, you know, he's going to attack the strike zone. Um, so right there is just I happened to get a curveball that I could put in the air. and uh, You know, luckily it got out. Does it feel like, because you mentioned the two home runs, you and Yaz both hit homers against him uh, in the first. And then I don't think you guys had a runner on base or in scoring position for a number of innings. Uh, does it feel like that guy, and I, and I think starting pitchers would probably agree with that, that you'd almost rather give up, not want to give up the home run, but if you give up a solo shot, you're not pitching high stress innings. You're not pitching with guys on base. So does it sort of feel as you get deeper into the game that he's still kind of in in the mode where he's just kind of cruising along because he hasn't had to come out of the stretch yet. I guess what I'm asking is how does your approach change later in the game after you've already had success in the first at bat? Yeah, I, I think especially for him, you know, we've, we've seen him a lot the last two years. It feels like every time we, we play the Dodgers, um, we catch uh, Julio and uh, you know, he's, he's a rhythm pitcher and he attacks his own. So um, you know, it's, it's important being aggressive early. And, you know, I think after those two homers, uh, we, we continued being aggressive, but he was able to get quick outs and, 
um, you know, it kind of just snowballed for him that where he was able to just fall into a rhythm and, and, and locate those pitches instead of having to battle and, and maybe leave some mistakes over the middle of the plate. Um, but that's just the nature of, of uh, facing a pitcher like him that, uh, you know, really attacks the zone. Um, and so, uh, you know, unfortunately, we weren't able to get any more base runners and put some more stress on him and get into the bullpen. But, um, you know, uh, luckily that was enough for us. Yeah. Is that is that something you guys have talked about uh, philosophically as a team? Because I know early and in, in we're only about a third of the way through this season, but early in games, first three innings, you guys have done a really good job putting pressure on opposing uh, starting pitchers, jumping on them early. The middle innings have been kind of a struggle. And then the back end of the game, you guys have had some success, too. What happens in those middle innings? Is it is it uh, different pitchers coming in and you're only getting guys, you know, one or two times through the lineup for the opposing starters? And so you're seeing different arms. Is there a philosophy for how you approach at bats middle of the game versus how you do it early and late? Uh, well, in an ideal scenario, I think you, you approach, if you're seeing the same guy, you know, you approach him the same way. Um, you know, sometimes it's easy to, to lose concentration in those middle innings or you build a lead and uh, you can kind of take your foot off the pedal. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, as an offense, we, we typically have, have had a pretty good game plan on starting pitchers and, you know, try to make them work and, um, get their pitch counts up, uh, get base runners on and create some traffic, create some stress, like you said. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it has to be a little bit different for, uh, you know, guys that really attack the zone and, um, you know, you have, you have to just rely on base hits instead of, you know, potentially working counts and working blocks uh, and things like that to get, to get uh, traffic going on the bases. Does it feel like the pendulum in baseball has sort of swung back a little bit more towards that way? I know home runs are down this year. There's been talk about the ball and stuff like that. But it also seems not that you guys are playing small ball, but you guys are are doing a pretty good job of getting base hits and, and hopefully running into one where you've got guys on base. But you've played a little bit of small ball. There's been some bunting. There's been some stealing, stuff like that. Is that something you guys have talked about, or is it just sort of the way the games have unfolded? I think I think that's uh, kind of the way the games have unfolded. I think it's also, you know, a roster construction Um thing as well you know I I, home runs are down throughout the league I I do think when the summer starts picking up and it starts heating up um, you know weather-wise that you'll see more balls leave the yard Uh, but you know I think we've done we've done an unbelievable job of getting guys on Um, and then you know super clutch hitting Um, you know I think we're we're like third in the league in runs scored Mm -hmm. we're second in walks Um, so and you know last year we, we relied pretty heavily on the home run um, and I, I think that'll that'll come back into play. But, you know, for now, uh, you know, we've been able to sustain our offense, um, you know, with more of that small ball approach bunting. And, you know, I think with the shifts, uh, definitely the bun is open back up. And uh, that's been a priority for us, you know, uh, starting last year and and moving on to this year that, hey, if they're going to give it to us, we're just going to we're going to create some traffic. We're going to uh, put some pressure on the defense and, you know, um, hope that we can get a clutch hit later. So you, you've hit leadoff a lot this year. Uh, do, do you consider yourself a, a traditional leadoff hitter? Are you up there with like Michael Bourne and Dave Roberts and Scott Pitsednik <laughs> or those, those speedy sort of slap hitter guys? I think you've got more pop than that. I, I like to think I have more pop. I, I guess time will tell. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, uh, I like working counts. Uh, you know, the leadoff is, has become, uh, become something that I, I've, uh, gotten comfortable with over the years uh, you know it's definitely a different mindset change uh, you know you have to approach the first bat of the game as is kind of like a, a standard for the rest of the game try to set the tone and 
um, you know, get something going early. Um, and then you typically, you, you end up having a couple more bats um, over the course of the game. So, um, yeah, something that I like. And, you know, uh, I'd like to get a couple more steals uh, uh, as the season goes on. Uh, but, you know, I can, I can run a little bit. So I, I think I kind of fit the mold and, and I'll work some counts and try to get on base. Do you have the green light or do you got to wait for the side? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I, I, I do like getting the green light, uh, but I also I, I like getting the sign as well because I know Cap and Kai, our bench coach, uh, they do a ton of research before the game, you know, on, on what are good counts to run, um, what counts guys do and don't like to pick off in and, and, and those kind of things. So that kind of gives you a little added uh, boost of confidence, you know, when you see like the bright green go on and, um, and you feel pretty comfortable with that, confident in that. When you're when you're swiping a bag at the big league level, are you stealing off of the pitcher or are you stealing off of the catcher? Uh, for me, it's stealing off the pitcher. You know, there are there are a couple catchers in the league where I feel like, uh, man, this it's going to be a little harder to run. But um, you know, typically, you know, if the pitcher's slower than like a one five to the plate, um, you know, I, I feel pretty good no matter who's behind the dish, um, and and the guy still has to make a perfect throw. So, um, yeah, I, you know, if the guy's under a one five and it's an elite catcher, then, you know, it's starting to get a little dicey. Yeah. Yeah. It gets a little, it gets a little tight out there. You don't want to run yourself out of an inning. Uh, coming back to the, to the leadoff hitter thing, uh, you were talking about seeing pitches and working counts Has the approach for a leadoff hitter. You think changed uh, with the evolution of baseball? Cause it used to be like that. You had really speedy guys at the top guys who could put the ball in play. And the, the goal it used to seem like for a leadoff hitter was see as many pitches from that starting pitcher as you can kind of get a book for what he's looking at or what he looks like in this game. Has that approach changed at all with the way baseball has moved into kind of a, a power era where you're not swiping as many bags or, or playing as much small ball as we used to see uh i think a little bit you know i i still think there's a there's a pretty strong emphasis on on getting on base um however that's the getting on base part has changed i i think you're you're we're turning away from high average type hitters mm -hmm. uh to more hey defenses are shifting and they're and they're playing in smarter positioning uh, so you still you, you need to hit the ball hard um to to get hits and but still working counts and, and getting on base, you know, uh, via the walk or, or however it might be, um, is still, I still think a pretty important trend for a, for a leadoff hitter. Uh, coming back to the, uh, the Dodger series this weekend. So on Saturday, Tyro Estrada, who I think has had a, a really nice year. He's been, been great for you guys. He bats all over the lineup. I uh, ran into some trouble last Thursday in the day game and then just turned right back around and clearly short-term memory. His glove was brilliant this weekend against the Dodgers. He comes up against Clayton Kershaw, hits a home run off of him in his first at bat against Kershaw. One, how impressive is that to do against Clayton Kershaw? I know he's coming off of the IL, was gone for a month. And two, can you remember the first time you faced him and, uh, and what kind of stuff he was throwing yeah. Um, first with Tyro, I mean, he's, you know, it, it was a little hiccup on Thursday, you know, mm -hmm. it happens. Everyone has a bad game. You know, you play 162 and, and he's out there for pretty much every game. He's been a, um, absolute, like, you know, godsend for us, you know, especially at the start of the year with all the injuries we had, and, um, you know, he's won us a ton of ball games. Uh, so, you know, that was just something that luckily he was able to brush off and, and move on. Um, and, you know, off Kershaw, you know, the it's kind of like a heightened at bat because, you know, you want to you want to prove yourself. to you know, one of the game's elites and, you know, I, I think, 
just you look at his body of work, he's he's probably a, a Hall of Famer, you know, if he retired right now. Um, so it, it, they're always fun at bats and um, really competitive at bats. Um, and so, I, you know, I know Tyro went into that game excited and uh, he was able to, to get one out. And that, you know, that was huge for us, uh, especially after he, he mowed us down, you know, the first inning. Right. Um, so, that, so that was great. But yeah, for me, uh, I think the first time I saw Kershaw was, um, I want to say in 17 or 18, it was at home. He was just coming off a back thing and he was, he was topping out at like 80, 88, 89. Um, but I still, I still remember getting uh, sawed off, like, getting absolutely sawed off, jammed uh, off of him. I think I was able to sneak out a base hit, maybe broken bat base hit. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that it, it takes, it takes a while to get used to um, used to those at bats just cause um, you know, he's got elite command and uh, good stuff. Everything runs into inside to righties. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where the more you see him kind of the, the more comfortable you get because um, he's got he's got an elite slider, and you know that's what's made him good throughout his career. He's funky on the uh, the on the windup too, like when he's not out of the stretch, right? He's got the he's got yeah. the weird timing where he kind of he'll come up with the leg and then it drops back down, and you've got to wait for him to kind of bring the arm around, right? Is it a funky timing mechanism with him? Yeah, yeah, to, and yeah. That's it's so true. It's like the the timing off of trying to get timing off of him the first couple of bats is is definitely weird. He's got the hitch, um, yeah. and then out of the stretch, he he just kind of like leans and falls and then he's right on you uh, so that getting the timing off of him is definitely something that's tough uh, you know seeing him in the first or second game so throughout your career you've done really well against lefties and now with the way the giants do things we kind of do that line change you've had a, a career over 840 ops against lefties this year you kind of have some reverse splits is that something you've, you've made a point to focus on right-handed pitching or is it just sort of where we are this early in the season where things may, may level out or average out or uh, how you feeling against righties this year i guess is my overall question yeah, yeah, I feel I feel better against righties. I think there's there's uh, I think my body of work last year um, was was not really what what it would look like um, throughout my career if I was facing righties more often. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's um, you know I look back on last year and there's stretches where I went like a couple months without you know facing a righty, um, or if I did, it was like a late game closer type. Um, so it, it's really hard to judge. Um, you know, the last season splits off of the righties. And, and this year, you know, we've been pulling the trigger at any point in the game, whatever, wherever the leverage is, you know, runners in second and third lefty comes up in like the fourth or fifth uh, I'm getting in there. And so then I'll see a righty, the, you know, my next couple of bats and um, I've been able to more consistently see righties and, and get more comfortable with that. Um, but in terms of like the reverse splits this year, I think that's just, you know, um, early season, I think, the 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 splits will come back against the lefties, you know, um, where the OPS usually is. I think that's just a small sample size, and um, I'll keep working on 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 that throughout the season. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go against that. I'm gonna say you're having a good year against righties. We're gonna keep it going. I, I got confidence <laughs> in you, Austin. I, 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 don't don't, don't you. be so hard on yourself, man. I like I like where you are against righties. Hey, I, th- I think that's a hilarious uh, sort of element to the game too. You go like two months and don't see a righty, and they're like, here's Edwin Diaz, here's Bruce Dark Ratterall. Have some fun with that, for right? You. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good guys. luck. Go yeah, tough, exactly. Go tough guys late yeah. in the game. Uh, you play all over the outfield, man. We, we see you mostly in center and in right field, but you played some left too. I, I was wondering, I want to say I've asked you this in the past, maybe out at a fan fest or something like that. If you got a new teammate coming up, a guy like Luis Gonzalez or Elliot Ramos or somebody who hasn't played outfield a whole bunch at Oracle Park, what's the first thing you tell them? How do you play right or center field there? What's the wind like? How would you sort of coach them out on that? Yeah, um, I, I always think back to the first conversation another player had with me about, you know, playing at Oracle um, and that outfield. And, and it was Hunter Pence, and, and he, he gave me some great advice just, you know, on how the wind blows, pushes towards the line and right and left, which mm-hmm. is, you know, something you don't typically see. Um, and then, you know, everything pushes towards that uh, right center gap. So, you know, the wind's swirling out there and, uh, you know, the advice he gave me was just always keep your feet moving. Like as soon as you, you start standing still and, and think you're sitting under a ball, <laughs> next thing you know, it's 10, 15 feet uh, in whatever other direction than the one you're standing in. So, um, you know, I thought that was great advice. And I always try to tell guys that when they come up, just like, hey, like the wind blows, don't, you know, overthink it, but just keep your feet moving. Um, and I, I feel like that's, um, that advice has helped help me. And so I, I trend, tend to try to pass that on. Cause from a fan perspective, like I remember being younger and sitting out in the bleachers and at night, it always feels like the winds in your face, but it kind of feels like that up on the arcade too, or like up over the brick wall. And if you watch mm-hmm. the flags, I was like looking at the flags during night games. It looks sort of like the wind does come over the stadium and sort of goes out towards triples alley, but then sometimes it'll change direction and go hard out towards left field. Do you have to constantly be sort of adjusting or is there any consistency? Is it batter to batter pitch to pitch? Are you constantly kind of reevaluating what the wind is like out there? Yeah, I think I think what makes Oracle so so weird is that you you can't trust the flags. Like the flags are the ones uh, on top of the stadium above the third deck are blowing. You know, look like they're blowing straight out. Right. The ones in, in right center are blowing like like towards left field. Sometimes sometimes they're blowing towards right. Um, but you know, the ball typically does something completely different. And, and I, I think I think a lot of that has to do with. Um, you know, the arches are open. There's, there's an air, airway through there. And then, uh, there's open air through uh, coming in underneath center field as well. So uh, both of those things combined with, with the wind blowing above the stadium, I think just cr- kind of creates like a, a whirlwind. Um, and, uh, I, and it's typically stronger winds. So the ball, ball tends to do funky things. Yeah, not quite Candlestick Park, but it's, uh, I, I'd imagine yeah. it's not the easiest outfield to play, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's definitely a home field advantage for us, yeah. you know, uh, especially on a super windy night. You'll see a, a road team come in that hasn't played there a lot. and uh, You'll get some pop ups dropped and uh, can cause some havoc out there. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, OK, I want to uh, I want to get to a, a sort of a fun one here uh, as we finish up. I was like to uh, just want to peg you guys with questions. I asked uh, Evan Longoria last time we had he, him on. Uh, could he name all seven ways to reach first base? He did pretty well. I think he got like six of the seven or he may have gotten all seven. I'm going to ask you this okay. one. You're the player rep. You got to know your guys, right? Got to know your teammates. Yeah. Got to know stuff about them. All right. You, you have a, a series of different players who've come in over the last couple of years and numbers are constantly changing. I'm going to quiz you on on some of your guys numbers. Let's start with an easy okay. one. You're in the outfield. I imagine you know the pitchers pretty well because you see the backs okay. of the pitchers probably more than anybody else. Logan Webb, yeah. what's Logan Webb's number? Uh, <laughs> 60, 64, 67, 
62. 62, ah, Logan 62. Webb. I knew it was in the 60s. Uh, you know how I remember it? I remember it because uh, he threw game 162 last year, and it was a big oh, one, right? So yeah. that's, how, that's, how I, that's how I remember. All right, you're, you're 0 for 1 on the Logan Webb. Okay. It's not going to get much easier after that. Let's go back to a guy we mentioned earlier, Tyro Estrada. What's his number? 34. 39. 39, 39. Tyro Estrada. <laughs> ah, man. Is going to bum you out? I don't mean to bum you out. Uh, no, you're numbers. good. You're good. I was hoping you were going to follow up with that long go question because it's funny Funny you mentioned that. Uh, I, he didn't say it was from this interview, but he was asking everyone that question. Uh, oh, that's great. Like a couple weeks back, yeah. So I was hoping you were going to ask me that one. I was just going to like drill it out you're gonna know them all you're gonna pack them yeah, do, you, do you know do you know the seven i think it's seven ways do you know do you know which ways to reach base but the scoring ways yeah are? yeah it's hit error um catcher's balk yep um fielder's choice uh error and uh, i think you missed you missed you miss hit by pitch you said you oh, said error i think it was hit by pitch Hit walk, hit by pitch, error. Catcher drops the ball in the third strike. Catcher's ball. And catcher, yeah, and catcher drops the third strike. Yeah, yeah that's the catcher's third strike. Anyway, yeah, so that's funny. Choice, yeah. Infielder's choice. You guys were bouncing, yeah. <laughs> bouncing that around. The because uh, yeah. I, I imagine you guys aren't sitting there like a like a little league ke- keeping score in the dugout. You know, uh, they no. do that for you. Uh, okay, let me ask you now. How about John Brebia? You got his number? Brebia. He's got a weird one. Fifty. 59? Yeah, 50, 58. I, 59, you're right. I don't even know if I can name another okay. giant in my mind who wore 59, like on a regular season roster. Yeah. That's, a, that's a funky one. How about the new guy, Austin Wins? Austin Wins. He was oh, 14. 14, I was going to say, one off of you. Okay. He's got a good yeah. one. Did, okay. By the way, did you yeah. did you notice him uh, yesterday or on uh, on Sunday in the ball game? Uh, I, I thought he was a lot of fun to watch catching behind the plate. He was he was like uh, doing the thing where he's like throwing dirt on Austin Barnes' shoe kind of or hitting dirt behind him like it's a, <laughs> a back foot slider and then setting up for a high fastball. He's kind of animated yeah. back there. It looks like he's, he's pumping up the starting pitcher. What did you think of him on Sunday? That, it was awesome. I mean, first of all, I, I think uh, there's not enough credit goes to the catcher when, when you throw a shutout. Or, or keep an offense like that at bay. Um, you know, it's it's probably one of the elite offenses in the league. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought uh, not only did he call a great game, I thought he handled uh, Carlos really well. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, psychology stuff that, that goes into the pitcher-catcher uh, relationship and, and how they how they game plan, how they, how they talk during the innings, um, on the bench, uh, you know, if they're thinking on the same page and um, you know uh, there's a couple times in the dugout where he's like uh, he was asking Lois, he's like, Hey, you trust me? And he's like, all right, yeah, let's, let's, and then he's like pumping <laughs> him up, rallying him up. And Carlos is, he's a psychopath in the best way. Um, and he was just all amped up and he was, it got him going. So, uh, you know, I thought he did an unbelievable job. Uh, yeah, you, could, you could see that on the broadcast even during the game. I was watching the game and there was a couple of moments where it looked like uh, Carlos had maybe shaken him off and then he stepped off the mound for a minute and then he called the same pitch and was like, come on, man, we're going to throw this pitch. And he was he was fired up about it. It looked, uh, yeah. looked like he had a good connection going. All right, last one before we let you go. Donovan Walton. What number is Donnie Walton? Donnie Walton. I want to say he's in the 30s. Y'all give me that. He's in the 30s. 30s. 
seven. You got it, man. You nailed it. All right, off on a, off all on right, a high note. Right, right. So uh, we won't tell we won't tell Tyro uh, you got him wrong, and we definitely won't tell Webb that you uh, <laughs> you missed. Well, I won't miss Webb. those ones again. If they ask me later, I'll, I'll have it. I'll have it locked and loaded. Yeah, start start asking the guys in the uh, the clubhouse. Uh, yeah, what's uh, what's John Brebbia's number? See if they get fifty nine. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, I really appreciate the time today, Austin. It's always fun when I get to catch up with you. And uh, you had a great uh, great series against the Dodgers. Looking forward to uh, to getting the rest of the season underway, and we'll talk to you down the road, hopefully. All right, can't wait. What a fun conversation with Austin Slater. And, uh, yeah, that win on Monday night after the Giants sweep the Dodgers. They get to take on the Kansas City Royals, who are struggling a little bit. And it's been uh, a long time, I think, since the Giants have seen the Royals going back before COVID. But I think the first thing you think when you see the Royals every time they come to town or the Giants go out to Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City is Pablo Sandoval grabbing that uh, that pop-up up up the third baseline off the bat of Salvi Perez to clinch the 2014 World Series. So the Giants actually, after winning that game on Monday night against the Royals, clinched a winning home stand their longest homestand of the season actually of all of 2022 this will be the longest so after this week the Giants will hit the road they go out to Pittsburgh then they'll be out to Atlanta that'll be a nice little litmus test but Ozzie Albies for the Atlanta Braves broke his foot he's going to be out for an extended period of time so nice opportunity for the Giants here to get healthy Brandon Belt back off of the injured list they will be getting back some of those pitchers as we talked about them earlier guys like uh, Alex Cobb and Anthony DiScalfani should be returning at some point soon but uh, again a big thank you to Austin Slater for spending about 25 minutes with us today. Always fun picking his brain. And every time we get these guys on, I figure, what do I want to know? What have I sat at the ballpark for 22 years wondering that I could ask these guys? And Austin gave us a really great insight on how to sort of look at the flags or don't look at the flags when you're looking at the way the ball is traveling out there. The archways certainly play a role, but getting some good insight from him. Plus, as the uh, the player rep for the union for the Giants, he's he's maybe going to do a little bit of homework on his uh, on his number knowledge. Uh, he got some of the tougher ones, though, Donovan Wall. Walton and uh, uh, Brebbia, of course, number 59. I had to look it up to see what other great Giants in history had worn number 59 before John Brebbia. Most recently, Andrew Suarez, remember him, the left-handed pitcher, kid out of Miami? He had worn number 59. And if you go back to when I was a big fan as a kid, Jeremy Accardo, who was eventually traded up to the Toronto Blue Jays for... Shea Hillenbrand, that was another giant in the past who had worn number 59. So a couple of funky giants wearing 59, but John Brebbia having a very nice year out of the bullpen for the Giants. So again, a big thank you to Austin Slater. Thank you to Kelsey, our producer here at the Inside Giant Moments podcast. Until next week when we will be back with more great giant stories for the 2022 season. I've been your host, Adam Copeland. We'll talk to you next week. Swing and a drive! Home run for Brandon Crawford. This. What a performance from Logan Webb tonight. Camilo Doval. Gets the save. Is. Yastrzemski. Gone! And late night Lamont strikes again. The belt was all over it. The captain. Inside Giant Moments. It's headed for the bay. The third of the night for Jock Peterson. With Adam Copeland. Well, strikeouts and they're on their feet here at Oracle Park for Carlos Rodon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And 
conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.